Welcome to the Dylan Bush Podcast. My name is Dylan Bush, and today, joining me, my long-haired brother, Ryan Nowak from BGSU, Anthony Wayne High School. How are you doing, Ryan? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Excited uh, to get Thank to you. We're glad. For anyone listening, this is a Dylan Bush Podcast first. Thoughts worker on the podcast. I mean... So. Guilty as charged, you... I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're glad to have you. Today, we'll just briefly go over what I'm talking about the whole duration. We'll be talking about what's going on with COVID in Ohio, across the country, stuff like that, how it's going to impact schools and college and whatnot. And then we're going to wrap it up at the end, and Ryan's going to kind of about Premier League and everything that's going on with that. And so, because I started watching it. You know, I don't know much, but Ryan knows a lot. So took you long enough. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's just get right into this thing. So, yeah. So Ryan, how how would you say COVID has affected your life since the very start till right now? So, in, in totality, the the spread of the disease itself hasn't drastically altered my life. The the biggest thing, honestly, is is getting kicked off campus early. But beyond that, so I, I work, like you, you alluded to earlier, I work in a, in a restaurant, so my work hasn't really been disrupted, uh, thankfully. We're, we're lucky because we're a takeout, a primarily takeout restaurant. Mm-hmm. So we've been a able, very good one. Yeah, and well, we've been able to, we've actually been doing pretty decent business since the break. Uh, I think the biggest is, is just that there's a, my day is shortened, essentially, so uh, seeing that, you know, the grocery stores and whatnot are, are open less or fewer hours. I, I, my days have gotten a little bit shorter, but other than that, I've been pretty fortunate to have a, a relatively consistent, consistent life post uh, start of this. Yeah. I think I'd be in the same boat with you. I got, my brother lives in Denver and I remember when we were being able to go back to gyms and go to go to get food he was still basically on like our stage one lockdown where you really couldn't do anything so being where we are we were kind of fortunate um we were i mean it's i mean it's still are even with this kind of new spike that's been happening we're still pretty fortunate but um it's it's a little worrisome um, i i think you made a, a kind of interesting uh, an interesting point regarding the gyms, because that that was something that I had almost completely forgotten about. Is I, I haven't gone to a gym since like January, probably. Um, yeah, that has been a big thing. I mean, I don't lift, but just to be able to play basketball inside was nice. Yes. Oh, that was the biggest thing at the beginning of this was when the uh, the hoops were down around my uh, house, so I, I wasn't <laughs> able to play basketball until like April. <laughs> There was a really funny, uh, not, I wouldn't call it a thread on Twitter, but like people were posting pictures of like city workers with like tools taking down the rims around the city courts all across like big cities. My brother sent me a picture too, and everybody, all the hoopers on Twitter were outraged. You know, it's kind of, it's uh, on the, the topic of basketball, especially, it's kind of weird how crucial basketball has been specifically to the United States acknowledging the pandemic. Yeah, you're you're 100 right um, because you know NHL it, it plays almost the exact same season as the NBA, but just because of the I would say the NBA is just mass popularity amongst the U.S. 
citizens more than I mean NHL definitely resonates more in Canada than it does than basketball does and vice versa for the US. Well, so there's been this kind of like re, like sur- resurgence of well when basketball comes back we can come back and maybe maybe I'm just kind of making stuff up here but like once basketball really started to like get a hold of like where they're going to do this and they're going to start doing it that's kind of when like society as a whole started to open up too i i think there's some parallel there and the the interesting thing is for me anyways i remember back when this first started becoming a major issue in the states was, was our, probably the night that rudy gobert got sick <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah i we talked about that briefly back when that happened and and how like that was kind of a a eureka moment for the states and and i think we might end up talking about this later on but the way that uh the European leagues, specifically soccer, have started coming back, and now it's encouraging North American sports to come back. I, I, th- I think that's kind of a double-edged sword. One hundred percent agree with you. You want to go into that a little bit, or uh, we can. So I think uh, on the topic, especially because we, when you're comparing the data, especially from from Europe to the United States, Europe is further into its recovery, whereas the United States is is still maintaining pretty high daily rates. I know Florida and Texas both recently hit uh, single-day highs for confirmed yeah. cases. And granted, that data is slightly skewed because holiday weekend and backlog testing, but even then. But uh, the European sports leagues came back, and I think it really started to to put the, the pressure on American sports leagues to start coming back, even if the situation isn't right. And it goes beyond just the numbers. I mean, even if you think of the games themselves, the, the sports that would be playing right now in the U.S., you've got Major League Baseball, basketball, and hockey. Uh, and specifically basketball and hockey, those are indoor sports. They're played. I, I don't think there's a single – well, I know there's not, a, there's not a single arena that's outdoors for either of those, and that's a complication as, a, as opposed to, yeah. to the European soccer leagues. Those are almost exclusively played out of doors, and that – you know, removes a risk factor. And I think with this, the, these American league coming back, I think it, it's almost like a false hope as, as depressing as it is to say that, but yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, one thing I thought was kind of funny was, you know, it's almost as soon as the lockdown happened, everybody immediately looked towards, well, where and instead of the problem at hand and realizing it, it was almost like, well, when can we get out kind of thing? And, because a lot of the places were kind of beat us. It sounds terrible, but they beat us to getting COVID first. Like Italy really broke out before we even really started seeing cases skyrocket here. Once countries like that were able to recover and kind of return to normal life, even other Asian countries like Korea and Japan, we kind of assumed, hey, we're good to go, even though we probably weren't as, further, as far along progressed as we should have been. You know what I'm saying? Kind of like... No, you're right. I don't know if there's a process to it. I don't know if there's like a five-stage Tony Robbins kind of program to (laughs) self-help or something. But like we definitely were on like stage three while those countries were on like stage five. And we kind of started, you know what? Well, if Europe's doing it, we can do it. And we'll talk about this a little bit later. But just like kind of the culture of America as a whole kind of played into that uh, false, false hope of... Well, we'll be fine because we're America. There's, there's definitely something. I think another big thing, uh, specifically with the United States, is we have a really strong culture of uh, individualism, 
Uh, and that's it's been a hallmark of the states and and some some disrespect for lack of a better word or, or um, distrust of government mm-hmm. uh, not that you need to trust government entirely but the the result of of the American spirit for lack of a better word is you see some reluctance to adhere to some of these guidelines until it it becomes you know aggressively obvious and and it's for that reason that we're we're still seeing you know these spikes across the nation. To the point where I know Ohio is back on the rise as far as uh, its cases. I know, uh, like, if you look at, uh, like, the Bible Belt, the Bible Belt's pretty pretty hard hit at the moment. And, and this is despite the fact that we've been aware of the issue for, you know, going on five months now. Uh, and, and there's just been no, there's been no concerted effort. Mike DeWine... Uh, gave me a headache today with that press conference. He comes out and he's like, please wear a mask. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't want to get too right, far right. into this because I want to talk about schools first. So before, before we go any further, we're going to talk about schools and college and how Corona is going to impact that. All right. So talking about schools and college, let's start with college first. And then we can kind of, I can kind of progress that. I got a thing I want to do that kind of leads into how that could affect schools from our end. And then we can go straight into schools. So first things first, right now, as it currently stands, our university that we go to, Bowling Green State University, is planning on having a hybrid system where there's partial classes that are in person, some that are online, and some that are kind of a mix of both where you have the choice of whether you want to or not. Um, they are requiring self checks before you come to school or come to college, excuse me, that include making sure you have a good temperature, making sure you're not showing certain symptoms. And, and most importantly, they're requiring masks mandatory across all of campus. Um, so I, I ask you, what do you think of the plan and I should mention before that they made this plan about a week or two weeks before Wood County came out and came out and said that they are on a level three, which requires masks and a little more kind of, so yeah, kind of preparation. I, I think the, there are a couple of like cultural issues, kind of what we were talking about. Uh, there's a very strong onus on students to have perfect attendance, uh, and I, I think the self, the idea of self-checking is problematic in that regard. But the, the most important point here is, you know, the, the broad majority of the people that attend the university are, you know, between 18 and 22. They're, they're young adults. They're mostly healthy. Some of them are going to have underlying conditions. But let's say, you know, broadly 90% of these people are the group that for the most part is least likely to be affected by the disease. Uh, mm-hmm. and now granted, I'm, I'm going to make a comparison that is not necessarily the same sample, but I know the, the Kaiser family foundation recently completed a study that, that essentially it put the number at around, I want to say 30% of educators, public school educators, uh, one in four, one in four public school educators is a high risk to contract the disease. And if these students are coming in asymptomatic as carriers, even if you take the precautions mm-hmm. of the mask, I, the the problem is that most of these classrooms are filled to capacity, uh, and you're even with the mask on, 
you're sitting inside, you're sharing a space, you're sharing that that area with a group of people. Definitely, I doubt there's there's any good chance of truly fulfilling social distancing guidelines. And even if you're masked up, and even if you're taking all these precautions, and even if you're self-checking, you're still going to have asymptomatic carriers. And when somebody gets sick, I think you're you're going to have more than just the the PR nightmare that comes out of that. Because I mean, uh, remember what happened with Liberty right before everyone shut down? They said we're not going to shut down, and then you know, a hundred students got sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's problematic, and. This is less of an issue at the college level, but the hybrid classroom has the potential to really affect poorer students. Uh, Explain that. Explain that because I want to see how you think about that and maybe someone who isn't in college or who isn't thinking about that aspect of it. I want them to kind of uh, understand. So the thing – college is is an investment in the first place and and getting there is expensive and you realistically have some wealth but the the fact of the matter is if you go to a hybrid classroom uh where you know the broad majority of your materials are placed in an online situation and you don't have consistent access to the internet you're putting yourself well you're not putting yourself you're being put behind the eight ball pretty significantly uh so Bowling Green's uh, classroom infrastructure is based around an online course in the first place. And if all of a sudden you start seeing lectures going online, readings going online, and all of your assignments going online, uh, and you don't have reliable internet access, if you don't have reliable computer access, and, and another important thing to note is these schools are often, even at the college level, these schools are often places that are somewhat safe. So you might have students that are potentially coming from less safe households that are that were originally going to commute to school they were going to be able to take care of their you know day half of the time at the university use the school computers and now they're stuck potentially in, a, in an environment that is unsafe or toxic to their learning without consistent internet access without consistent computer access um i want i think you make a lot of no go, oh, ahead, sorry, go, sorry, ahead. go ahead i was gonna say i think you make a great point about that too because you realize that we'll talk about this later but if you're going to shift to an online in a college where students are expected to have at least somewhat of wealth so they can even attend a college, I can't even imagine how much that impacts poorer students or poor school districts as a whole at the secondary level, the primary level, you know, that's even more. And it, it even goes a step further too, because let's, if you're a student that's coming from a district, like a public school district that is less well off and you have less experience with a laptop, imagine you're an incoming freshman who has not worked consistently with even like Google Classroom or a Chromebook, and all of a sudden your college education that you're spending eleven thousand dollars a semester on becomes inextricably linked with an online curriculum. Not only do you not entirely understand how to access it and how to use it, you might not have the skills as far as like time management and and, and uh, resource management that you would have otherwise been taught. Whereas if you come from a, a relatively well-to-do school, you're used to, okay, I need to check my Canvas. I need to check my Power School. I need to go through and do this and set this time up. And you have the ability to do it because you know you can sit at home and you can turn the internet or you can turn your computer on. You'll connect to the internet every time and you can just sit down and do it. Yeah, I want to I want to make mention of something too. And I really don't like talking about the president because I don't like talking about politics, but 
one thing that I've noticed he's been saying recently is that funding, or maybe he didn't say it, but maybe well, the, the, that foundation, not the foundation, that administration said that schools that don't open up, I'm not sure how that applies to colleges, will not be receiving funding if they don't open up in person. I... Um, well, that was that was that was Trump. Uh, no, you were right. I, I believe that both Trump yeah. and Betsy DeVos are on the record saying that. Um, okay, okay. But <laughs> I know I know it's that, that kind of administration's been doubling down on that whole. It doesn't matter what's going on. We're going to reopen up no matter what. And um, for the listeners, if you couldn't tell by this point, I think you can assume me and Ryan both lean on the top on the side of as future educators as more safety rather than risking lives. Um, that's just kind of our general stance, which should be most people's stance. But. Well, and I think that if you look especially at the K through 12 education, and this goes back, like one in four of your teachers are going to be high risk. You mm-hmm. have students and it, the perfect attendance policy is a great, like did your, uh, any of your K through 12 school reward you for having perfect attendance? Cause I know that my school district did. Yeah, so I think there was, at the end of the year, they gave out rewards, awards to people who had good attendance. I mean, some classes have attendance tied to them because of certain points. Like, every day we do a certain question. If you're there, you can answer it, you get a point. So there's there's even grades. Oh, yeah, it's it. it's a huge deal, uh, and, and it's a part of the culture. And if all of a sudden you're like, well, I'm a little bit sick, it could be the flu, I might have allergies, I'm going to school because I'm not super sick and I'm expecting to be super symptomatic and you give it to somebody else. That's a problem. Or, and even the, the, I think the biggest issue with the public school, and this goes back, especially as far as disaffect, dis, ah, disproportionately affecting poor students. If you force a return to school and you force a return to normalcy, those classrooms are already overcrowded. That's been a a policy discussion Mm. for decades is that we have too many students in the classroom you can't enforce social distancing like that you are encouraging this yeah. disease to spread even if you're all masked I mean, up I'm, i think i think in a normal classroom if you're trying to social distance with six feet i think you're maybe getting 10 kids in i there, think if you're lucky honestly if you're lucky you're getting 10 that's an optimistic view and to that point i to where you talk about how it could spread I want to talk about the difference between maybe if you were a grocery bagger who is considered an essential worker versus a teacher who would could spread it. So if you're a grocery bagger and you come into work with it, with coronavirus, um, you could easily spread it to every single person that you check out and they could spread it to their families. However, there's not quite, and they could spread it and they could spread it, but there's not the feedback loop that there is, at, uh, at a high school or a middle school. So let's, for example, say you come in to school and you get sick from a, from a student. That student comes into a different classroom and give it to another student. That student comes into a classroom because you're switching class. Students are switching classrooms six, seven times a day, and they're constantly switching it, or switching classrooms and spreading it. Teachers spreading it when they teach different classes. And there's kind of this, uh, like domino effect that happens and within a school you could easily see it spread I don't know how fast it technically spreads like I don't know if there's some sort of person per day or something but you could see it spread within a school within a month easily well and I, I think it could be faster than that think about the uh, oh, what was it? the princess diamond the cruise ship at the beginning of the pandemic that uh, went from China to Japan and got stuck it was forced to stay off the uh, 
stay off the coast. Nobody could disembark. It's the same idea. You have an, an ecology that is reliant on every piece constantly shifting and interacting with other pieces. Um, and, and you mm-hmm. end up in the situation where you have so many different vectors that can carry this disease. And I get that young people are less likely to be killed by this disease. But more studies are starting to show that some of these cases are starting to have really long-term or potentially devastating long-term uh, outcomes. Like I, We're starting to see people who may have serious lung damage, who may have serious heart impairment. Uh, we're seeing some of the testing out of Wuhan showed that something like 40% of, uh, of a sample, now granted it was a relatively small sample, but a sample of like 250, 40% of those people had damage to their brainstem and, and how yeah. it deals with respiration. And if we're going to do that to kids, like it's different than, and it's even different than workers because it's not voluntary. There's no choice. A hundred percent. Cause, because, you know, if you, if you, if you say, you know, like, like, and I hate to put someone who bags groceries on the, on the hot seat. Cause I keep calling them out, but if you're just doing that job, you can I mean, I mean it's a lot easier to quit that job and to leave that job to put yourself out of risk and because i mean i mean you could go with there's just a little there's just more flexibility than leaving a job where you sign a salary where you get x number of i have i have something else i want to talk about now and i just thought about that but you have x amount of time you can get off about and it's just a lot harder to find a job and kind of get back into it and one, I don't want to take, go away from what you know, talked about with the long-term issues because that's super important. I, I've seen a couple of things about that with long-term pneumonia issues, with strokes. There's a lot of, a lot of terrible things coming long-term, from, even from asymptomatic, asymptomatic people. Um, but people were talking about, well, what do you do if you're a teacher and you only get 14 sick days a year and you have to use your two weeks on COVID right away? Do you get paid during that time? How about what if you've already used your sick days and you go out with COVID? Do you get what do you ha- what happens there? Do you just not get paid for something that you contracted because you were forced to go back to school because of a government order and now the government that pays you no longer will pay you because it, it just gets messy and there's so many issues and I hate bringing up just pay but it, it is a big deal. It is a big it is a big concern. The other the other major concern that I have uh, specifically with the the way that they're wording this, this return to school in person or lose your funding. Uh, the significant issue with that is look at how colleges are responding. Like we, we just talked about how Bowling Green is shifting to a hybrid, partially online, partially in-person program because it knows it's the safest course of action. But we're still encouraging, but the but our the the presidential administration is encouraging in person classrooms in spite of this, and it goes even a, a further a further step because if you if you try to move into a hybridized classroom, that digital divide becomes even more stark, because I mean we're talking mm-hmm. about potentially little kids uh, we're talking about people that are significantly earlier on in their life they're significantly less likely to have the financial assets of somebody that can afford to go to college even if they can barely afford to go to college so if you take you know a family that's living below the poverty line 
and you say, okay, we're moving to hybrid schooling because in-person schooling is not safe. What is that student going to do if they can't afford a computer, if their house doesn't have Wi-Fi? Is the school going to provide them a computer? Where's that computer coming from? Is the school going to provide them Wi-Fi? I know that uh, I want to say Comcast was providing Wi-Fi for for college students that needed it. But are they going to continue to do that? Uh, And and you just kind of you find yourself in this catch-22 because you need to get back to school. But you also need to not endanger the livelihoods of, you know, millions of students and teachers. Yeah, and um, we'll talk about this more when we talk about the society of it, but the over, it's just, uh, in my opinion, the irony of pushing schools to come back in person, even though that we're not clear enough to do so, just is so reminiscent of what we're dealing with right now with certain groups and certain administrations pushing for opening up when we probably shouldn't have. And, you know, everybody, and this even goes to something I didn't even think about bringing up, but people oh, are talking about the Confederate statues and not wanting to take them down because they're taking down history. And if you take them down, we'll be damned to repeat it. And it's like, well, if we're, if we're damned to repeat it, let me ask you something. If we're just going to open up the country right away, and it rebounds the way it did because we didn't patrol it or we didn't handle things right the first time. Why would we do the, if we're repeating history in the schools again, it'd be the exact same thing happening. In the if schools. you look at the graphs, I think it, it tells a, a very telling story where you look at these graphs, it's very low goes, this is where we shut down the schools and then it gets worse. You go, we need to go back to school. You removed the people from the burning building when the building was starting to catch fire. Now it's fully an inferno and you go, well, we should put them back because if we wait any longer, it doesn't, it, it's not sensical. It, it's, it's a terrible mentality because we're trying to, we're trying to move on before we solve the problem. We're trying to cross the river before we build the bridge and people are going to drown. I wanted to, I wanted to bring up a, uh, a topic with you that kind of interweaves the schools and the universities. And that is, educate as us as education majors field placements and student teachers as a whole now one thing that i've been thinking about is i need we both need that ed whatever credit 2980 where we are yeah, in a field placement 2990 my bad excuse me 2990 where we're in a classroom or we are in a somewhere that's in the community but regardless on behalf of the university for university credit, you are in a school or an office or somewhere being a part, doing your classwork. Imagine if you are a small school, let's say our school that we went to in the fall, but last year out Seago, you are a small school with a very centralized and kind of closed off community. Now imagine letting 15 students into your school from you don't know where, who you don't know what they do in their free time, what they're doing. That is a huge risk for schools to take on. And I'm wondering if, and then from the other side of it, before I go on from the other side of it, you're sending college students into schools where you don't know where the kids are coming from. You don't know the precautions that the schools are taking. It seems like it's a liability on both sides. And we're kind of caught in the crossfire that neither side would probably want to take on the issues and the challenges that it would take 
to put student teachers and uh, students in field placements into those placements. So what do you think about that scenario? So I, I honestly think the major issue is less with field experience, even though the experience is a necessity and, and more with uh, people who are, are going into their senior year and need to complete their ed TPAs. Um, yep. The ed TPA for those unaware, it, it's one of the, the, the required tests that you have to complete as an educator to gain your licensure in the state of Ohio. Uh, and the only way you can really complete it is to go into a classroom and, and student teach more or less. That's the short of it. But um, the field experience is great. It helps you, you know, learn how to be a teacher. You can, you can get advice from people that have been in the field for a long time. I, I don't know if it's reasonable this year. And I think that it's worth considering an approach similar to what the graduating nursing program did last year, uh, where they waived some of their time. Essentially, they let them take they, they created t- temporary tests if i remember correctly what essentially amounted to temporary licensure tests so that they could graduate and move into the field more quickly before they passed full licensure Hmm. testing um and i i might have butchered the details on that a little bit because i'm not a nurse but um, yeah but i think that's kind of the the ideal response from the education field given that if we if we're constantly adding more and more vectors we're just constantly inviting disaster and I think we have to play 100% it. Agree. I, I think specifically the education, the educational construct has to play it safe because it is the only public construct that we expect everybody to go through. Yeah. And because, well, for us, we're not seniors yet, but not taking a certain field experience class could put us behind. And if there's no way to make up the credit or earn the credit in a different way, Basically, we are putting ourselves in a position where, you know, I know the I know the virus has affected more people, and there it's certainly more. Uh, it's there's certainly people that have been affected more than maybe a degree being pushed back a year or a semester. But still, that's money being spent, that's resources and time. And you're once again disproportionately affecting made, those poor students. And you're and you're affecting poor students. And who who are struggling just to make it a four year, make it through four years, taking eighteen credit hours just so they can do it in four instead of five, and you know it goes on and on. But I'm really I don't remember how because you know I told you last semester I was enrolled in it before I dropped out because I couldn't make it make it to my uh, make it to my placements because of work and whatnot. But I wonder how those people got credit if they got credit that were in that that placement. You know, did they get credit? Did they get half a credit? Are they going to be making it up? I, I, I would imagine they did. Just me I too. Think, me too. And, and this kind of goes back to what they were talking about with the nursing program. I, I genuinely think that if you can prove aptitude or knowledge, even without physically interacting in that environment, like I recognize that that is great, but it's icing. Um, 100% because even even like with the example of 2990 2990 is an accessory to a second class yeah um, yeah it's not the main attraction right it's just a little little side piece exactly and and the field placement itself is is there so that we can get experience but if you take the experience away that knowledge is still inherently valuable from the parent class i i honestly if you asked me if i were the, the you know the dean of the education college I would 
more or less make it or I, my suggestion would be we the only field placement you really need is your student teaching and the reason you need that student teaching is to pass your ed tpa so we either need to work with the state yeah. of ohio to find another way to help these people get their ed tpas done and get them into the field or we need to acknowledge the fact that like look these stu- these students are, are you know more or less a year behind and that's problematic in the teaching market because we, for as, as much as our field is competitive, you know, high school social studies, the, the, the broad majority mm-hmm. of education fields are, you know, severely understaffed. So can you yeah. really, can you take an entire graduating class from the entire nation and not put them into the field as teachers the next year? 100% agree. I think that was some really good talk about education's impact by COVID. Um, let's talk let's just transition into society's impact as a whole okay so focusing on society i think we talked about this idea of american individualism and exceptionalism earlier and we i've been taking an online class about american military history and what's so funny is that this concept was talked about as early as the colonies with the American Revolution. You have a lot of soldiers during that time that don't want to fight because they don't believe in the cause. And it, because they had, uh, the Americans were being trained by von Steubmann from uh, Prussia? Prussia, I think. Yeah, from Prussia. And he noted that, you know, in Europe, you just tell soldiers what to do and they just do it. They don't ask questions. They don't feel morally obligated to think about is it right or wrong but there's something about americans and you know they're fighting for their at that time they were fighting for just their for their existence for their ability to be in the colonies to be free from the rule of britain and there's something kind of like not like poetic about it maybe there's something that's almost like shakespearean like i'm fighting for more than just war and blood i'm fighting for a cause and that goes that kind of individualism that i'm not gonna fight because you tell me i'm gonna fight because i feel morally obligated to even goes you could see it in vietnam with people protesting the war with people dodging uh enlistments and drafts and just this kind of this idea that you fight for what you believe in not just what someone tells you to fight for and that kind of goes through today, and in certain cases, it's great, and that's what sets us apart from many countries in the world. But this idealism that we're separate and we're exception, we're the exception to everything, is kind of been problematic recently with COVID. And what I mean by that is, we think with certain things, such as wearing masks, that because we're Americans, that we don't have to do it, and that's kind of prolonged Corona. Do you, you kind of does that make sense? To, so you know? I I generally agree with what you're saying. I do think there's an important caveat to be made about this idea uh, of American exceptionalism. Um. So the the thing that I have noticed most, or, or the the tune that is most common, is this: there is the strong belief in in you know the singular American uh, and being self-sufficient and and that's why some of the the people that we consider to be folk heroes specifically i think of uh 
the westward expansion and the manifest destiny eras where we're like these are strong independent people who built their life on their own they're considered rugged but i don't think i don't think the exceptionalism goes so much as as it is like non-nationalist because i think the united states historically has been more or less one of the more nationalist nations on the planet if that you know follows would 100 percent agree Um, agree with that and and i i think that's that's part of the reason that we have we have a very strong national pride as a nation yeah yeah people people care i mean people fight about politics and they'll argue about it but it's because they're passionate about it because they care about america Right, but I think the problem is too often that nationalism, uh, or I think the the more important term is patriotism, because in the United States, I think we we always say patriotism instead of nationalism, and there's an important discrepancy between the two. Patriotism, I think, at least in my experience, patriotism is more like, I love my country, I want my country Mm -hmm. to do well, but I'm not going to blindly follow Whereas nationalism yes. tends to be more of the I'm just going to agree and follow in lockstep. Uh, but yep. I think the problem is the nation historically is is more of a nationalist than a patriot nation in a lot of examples. And this is one of those. And I think this is where we start to see the, the failings of our leadership. Um, the refusal to acknowledge this as the, the this pandemic is the issue that it was and the issue that it continues to be from the leadership, I, I think, cost numerous lives uh yeah. i i think about the uh the ref- like just the refusal to wear a mask and i know the mask thing is so so tried and so tested and, and talked about ad nauseum but the fact of the matter is the studies show that it, it saves lives and that it reduces spread and it's it's not inconvenient i i work in fast food I have to wear a mask my entire shift. It never comes off. I wear it for eight hours at a time. And by the second hour, I don't even know I'm wearing it. And I don't work. It's not like I'm sitting there doing nothing. I'm sweating my butt off because it's 105 degrees in there. Um, but I don't know. Like, it's just on my face. It doesn't matter. Uh, but this American exceptionalism, like, well, it's not my problem, I think, is the biggest thing that comes out of it. So many, I think these European nations, for an example, or honestly, I think the best example is probably South Korea. Like South Korea saw the problem. They went, oh, we need to mobilize at a national level because Mm -hmm. my life is as valuable as the next person's life, as valuable as the next person's life. You know, there's national solidarity. Um, But in the United States, I don't think that's as true. I think we have this tendency where as a nation the individual is more likely to go, well, my life is more important. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that because I think almost anybody would agree. Like, if I said a train is coming, it's going to hit you unless you press this button, in which case it's going to hit somebody else. I think the broad majority of people are going to hit the button because they value their life. And there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is at the national scale we need to mobilize as a nation because each life is as valuable as the next and we don't act like it is. Okay. So one thing Ryan's back finally, uh, sorry about that. No, don't worry. It's all good. Okay. Um, one thing I've noticed is in other countries, such as South Korea, Japan, um, contrary to the U S 
you know, and I'm not making excuses for the United States and their poor actions since the coronavirus pandemic has happened. But there's an ability within certain countries that are a little bit smaller and more uh, homogeneous than the U.S. that they can mobilize and they can do things at a national scale a lot easier than the U.S. can because we're dealing with so much variability between states, between cultures, between different racial groups. And again, I'm not making excuses because that means that the, the, the people at the top, the national level, it just makes the job harder, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. Um, but there's a certain idea that in a country like Korea, for example, I don't know what the percentage of the population is, but you're dealing with something probably like 99%, 95% Korean. For the most part, you're dealing with a certain demographic, a certain kind of uh, type of people that you're able to mobilize better than the United States, where you have someone in Nebraska who might be a farmer who might be white. You have someone in Texas who might be Mexican-American, who doesn't even speak English. And there's just so many different types of people, different kind of cultures within America that it kind of makes things harder to deal with on a national level. Would you agree there's some level of that? Well, my counterpoint to that is look at the response of the EU. Because I think it's almost inarguable that the European Union has a less homogeneous population than the United States. Even acknowledging that the U.S. is the melting pot. But like when you consider Mm -hmm. the the EU and just the strained relations between the different ethnic groups... 100% agree, yeah. um, But the EU as a whole still did better and, and this is with open borders for the most part like the mm-hmm. eu can be if we want to look at it as states in the united states it did better like italy had a terrible start that's like, yeah but italy also rebounded and has since settled out and most of europe has followed its example and the european union for the most part has done a really good job of that but yeah i mean the most us side, has like like yeah, like like you said, I mean, m- most soccer, most major soccer leagues in the EU have resumed with no fans, but in a bubble like the NBA, they're playing in their home arenas with almost no issues. I mean, some players get coronavirus here or there, but I don't think I mean, the Premier League has had a positive test for a player yet. Uh, well, I think really, Tro- I thought Tro- I thought I thought I'd heard one or two. Troy Deeney had the coronavirus, but I think that happened before the return to play. And I know the Bundesliga had very similar results. Where I know there have been some uh, support staff, and that's just as valuable and salient as a player. But I don't think, for the most mm-hmm. part, there have really been that many players infected since the leagues have resumed play. Uh, yeah. Just as an example of the success, I, I honestly think that the problem with the United States and and the, the major advantage, because if you're if you're just comparing them straight up, the difference is nationalized health care um, and, and stronger centralized decision making along those lines, not yeah. to mention a more rapid response. The United States. Uh, and this is something that I, I intended to look into more so take this all with a grain of salt but i think part of the issue and going back to the education thing part of the issue with the united states is we teach we always talk about critical thinking uh in school and we're always like think critically think critically think critically but we often just define critical thinking as what's wrong with this and as a result i think there's a a not insignificant 
portion of the United States that is, uh, for example, very science skeptic. Yeah, it, and hundred yeah, percent agree. And that's emblo. I mean, it's exemplified by the U.S. backing out of the Paris Climate Accords, by the removal mm-hmm. of the United States from the WHO earlier this yeah, year. That was pretty big news this week. Uh, <laughs> or too. how hospitals are now being instructed not to send their COVID nineteen data to the CDC. Yeah, like this weird, or how the White House is now actively trying to to discredit Doctor Anthony Fauci. Mm-hmm. This weird the well it's not it's not weird, it's very common, but this this rejection of science, this rejection of expertise is very, at this scale anyway, is almost uniquely American and it has significantly hamstrung any attempts by the country to effectively respond to and deal with this disease because the fact of the matter is with any pandemic or any global scale issue you can't effectively combat it without a global scale response. And until we can have, you know, an effective, overwhelming, everybody is on board pulling the rope, the problem doesn't get solved. It's the same thing as climate change, except in this case, it's more immediately deadly. Yeah. And I think another thing too, to, to mention is that, you know, the first step in the U S um, it was almost when, when it kind of hit here, I'll take blame of this. I did this myself, that there was an immediate, when I heard about it happening in Wuhan and in China and in Asia, there's an immediate reaction that that's over there. That's their thing that don't, I don't worry about that here because it's not impacting me. You know, that great example of isolation. Yeah. And there's that certain idea that that's their issue in America. We don't have that. That's, and it wasn't like, that's the China virus. Like, trump calls it or whatever uh, it was just it's out of sight out of mind kind of thing mm-hmm. going on and that's what happens a lot with global warming too but that's another whole topic so when it came here there's almost a bit of still oh it's just gonna hit the big cities it don't gotta worry about people out in the country you don't gotta worry about people that aren't in suburbs that are in suburbs but quickly we saw it go um to all parts of america not just new york and la and Dallas, it went all over the U.S. And it almost, in my opinion, it kind of caught the U.S. off guard a little bit. And and the gut jerk or the knee jerk reaction from the U.S. was, all right, states, you guys control your states, and we we will have a very very easy overlaying kind of message. But the states, you guys take care of it. And like you said, all of these other governments that have been able to take care of the coronavirus, they've had uh, strong top of the government national level leaders. And in the U.S., it's almost been governors, senators, congressmen, congresswomen in your states. You guys are in charge of it. Mayors, even, you know, it's almost been local and state. You guys take care of it while the national government kind of just does deals with the CDC and some of these other larger branches and kind of organizations within the government. And it's frustrating because, I mean, the fact of the matter, mostly the CDC is essentially an epistemological organization. Uh, it exists to create knowledge. Uh, mm-hmm. and it And it does an excellent job of that. It's not as well equipped to respond and i think that's exemplified by the fact that the when you know disaster outbreaks happen the first group sent in for the most part is the military 
which is just yeah. another cultural thing altogether. But <laughs> yeah, no, I. So the frustrating and going back or talking, you know, to point about this idea of our response was so scattered, it it, it just it was too scattered. I think it still is too scattered. Even uh, what was it the like a week ago when Governor DeWine noted like, hey, if your county hits le- our what we consider level three, you have to wear a mask in public. And I remember uh, I can't remember if it was the like the a district sheriff or the sheriff for the state of Ohio essentially was like, I won't enforce that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he works for the governor and even then. And that's been, yeah, there's been no enforcement. There's not been really any, you know, effective legislation. All of the acts that have occurred that have been effective have for the most part been in isolated areas. And if you don't, it just keeps coming back. If you don't have a a unilateral response, you will not have unilateral success. And the disease has, has really shown a lot of the failings of the United States and its insistence on being 50 states rather than one nation. And not to cut you off, but it kind of goes back to the original 13 colonies with the Articles of Confederation, kind of everybody, every colony, every state's on their own. And it's, you're a Virginian first, you're an Ohioan first, you're a Texan first before, well, Texas wasn't a part, but like, you know what I mean? You were your state before you were your country. Yeah. And that's kind of seems how, that seems how, this whole thing has gone down as Ohioans you deal or Ohio government, you deal with Ohioans, not American government. You deal with Americans. And like, I get using that as a bureaucratic system because ultimately bureaucracies can be, you know, very efficient and effective, but it just, it's really showing that weakness of the United States. And and it, it goes back like to the healthcare thing. Like even then we have so the, the access to healthcare is so limited and, and the fact that it's not a centralized organization or a centralized system really weakens it. Yeah. This, this whole pandemic has just shown like, look, the United States for as many things as it gets right, it gets a lot of things wrong. And, and it's kind of hard to argue with it at this point. Like, yeah, it's hard agree. There's been too much damage done and it's not, you can't say that it didn't happen because it did. We're now at the point where, what is it? 130,000 Americans have been killed by the coronavirus now. Yeah. So that's more than the revolution, than Vietnam, than Iraq, yeah. than Afghanistan, than the first world war. You know, like, and you know, I don't want to keep going on and on and on about this. Cause we could sit here and talk for hours. Obviously one, one common theme I've been seeing among people who are, advocates of just opening up regardless of what happens is it's only killing one percent or it's only killing half percent one percent in america of the 370 million people or however many people live here is still like three million people it's still a good chunk of people that's not three million people would be it that's half of the number of people that were killed in the holocaust that or at least jewish people killed in the holocaust it's three million people isn't just nothing well, three million people was one percent of the population, and it, it goes further than okay. Well, it's just three, three million people just died from the coronavirus itself. But then remember, you talked about it earlier with the long-term health effects. Then you have a certain number of people that are dealing with lung stuff for the rest of their life, brain issues. I heard strokes were a big issue, 
Yeah, and it's just affecting it's the brain just, Yeah, it, there's just so much more to it than just, well, hey, guess what? Um, only 1% of people are going to die. Or just because testing is going, testing is going up. So that's the only reason why cases are going up. And that's just a really ignorant, and in my opinion, very to have when it's you're also just a mathematically illiterate. Yeah. Like, yeah, I get, that, I, agree. I get that if you test more, you have more probability. But the fact of the matter is, let's let's look at it from a, a, a rate-based scenario then. The percentage is going up. The percentage of positive yeah. tests has increased for, what, like four, five, six months now? Like, I guess four, yeah. four months. It feels like a year and a half. It's just, yeah, it's a mathematically illiterate society in in that regards. But, well, uh, do you think you have anything else to add, Ryan? I think we should go to something a little more happier. Um, I think the, the the only thing I I really want to say before I I completely forget and we completely move on is like, look, it if you want to say like, okay, one percent of the population that gets it dies, okay, but here's the thing. I want you to picture like your high school graduating class and think of all of those people that you knew. Like I went to a school, our graduating class was like 400 people. If four students in my school died, like that'd mm-hmm. be huge. We would 100%. have, we would yeah. have, you know, these huge memorials and, and we're talking about, Oh, well, you know, millions of people, or hundreds of thousands of people have died and we're talking about it like it's an afterthought. There was an obituary page that was 43 pages long in Houston the other day. Unbelievable. We're experiencing a 9-11 amount of casualties every like seven days. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, it's very frustrating to me, but I, I, I think there's agree. some optimism, especially as we start yeah. to see stronger responses from uh, the centralized government bodies especially like some of these independent governors i agree i would agree ryan it was great talking about corona now let's shift to something uh a little more eurocentric with the premier league okay so premier league um for those who don't know it's like the year it's england's number one football league and if you didn't know that you're probably living under a rock um <laughs> because premier league is probably would you say out of like the biggest euro leagues out of like Bundesliga, Bundesliga, liga one uh all of those of the, the big five league, of the big five it's the probably the most popular uh it's definitely the wealthiest it, okay it, yeah it's pro it's almost inarguably the most popular in the states I would agree. I would agree. I mean, if you ask, I mean, maybe you, the only only other exception you could say is maybe like if you said the like uh, Barcelona fan or yeah, Madrid fan. I think there's, there's some certain La Liga a, has what's some, the Spanish La Liga? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say. that has some international gravitas because of the strength of Barcelona, <laughs> Atletico Madrid, and Real Madrid. But... Yeah, no, that's the problem. okay. Um, so right now. Premier League kind of had some breaking news with your Man City yes. as th- they have been allowed back into the Champions League after a successful appeal process. Now, for those who don't understand football, like myself, explain what the difference between winning like the Premier League would be versus winning the Champions League. So, uh, all of 
pretty much every nation in Europe has a top flight. So in England, it's the Premier League. In Spain, it's La Liga, so on and so forth. And those leagues kind of operate, if we're making an American comparison, like the different college football divisions do. So the Premier League might be like the SEC. Uh, Each domestic league hosts its own season and has a table. And at the end of the table, you have, you know, first place or end of the season, you have your first, second, third, fourth, so on. And the top couple teams from your league, depending on the strength of the league, are then entered into the big competition, the Champions League. And the Champions League is like the college football playoff. It's the best of the best, decking it out to see who's the best team in all of Europe. Uh, And it's almost inarguably the largest sporting attraction, annual sporting attraction on planet Earth. It's, I mean, it's that and the Super Bowl, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Man City winning winning their appeal and getting back into the Champions League is a huge deal because the other thing and and the major reason it's such a big deal is the Champions League is one of the ways that these domestic teams become fabulously wealthy. Entering the Champions League nets you a huge amount of television money and that television money matters because I mean you're not going to acquire top class players without top class uh, assets, especially financially. And City was looking at potentially seeing an exodus of talent because a two-year ban from the Champions League is a lot of time to not play top-flight football. Yeah, I mean, let's say, for example, I'm not sure how the prime how prime ages work in football, but imagine in the NBA if you, if you were telling someone who wanted to play for the Lakers, like LeBron, who's entering the end of his prime, probably going to digress. He was 34 when he signed with the Lakers. Hey, you can't play. You're not going to compete for the NBA championship for two years. And then at that point, when you're 36, you can compete for championships. And I know it's not completely correct because it's different leagues coming together, but just the idea of having to wait two years and basically playing two years of your career where you have no shot of getting paid or paid more or being able to like sign more talent because you're not making that money. And it just has like kind of like a domino effect throughout your whole organization. Oh yeah. And and it kind of, so in the same way that Alabama has been able to just recruit ridiculous football talent year over year over year, because they're always winning. If you're always in the champions league, that's how you get those better players. So uh, if you ask, you know, someone who's never watched soccer at all, if they've heard of any player, they're, if they say anyone, it's likely to be like Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi. Um, yeah. And for the longest time, the two of them played at uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona, respectively. And the reason those clubs or part of the reason those clubs are so big is because they're constantly competing for the Champions League. It is the biggest prize in club football. The only thing bigger in football is the World Cup. I agree. So I, I, I noticed maybe uh, maybe two weeks ago or so. All the Liverpool, all the Liverpool fans on Twitter were clamoring after they won, and they were like, they won the, the Premier League, they won the Premier mm-hmm. League, or they won something. No, you got it. The Premier League, you got it. So they won the Premier League just the regular season. Yes, is it that is it like they okay? So because I'm guessing there's a tournament. No, right? so actually the way the domestic oh. the way the domestic leagues in Europe work is you have normally 20 teams. Some of the leagues are smaller. The Bundesliga plays with 18, for example. Um, 
these teams, they, they have a, a 38 or a 36 game season, depending on the league, like I said. So the Premier League plays 38 games. And if you win a game, you get three points. If you draw a game, you get one point. If you lose a game, you get no points. And the whole goal is to have the most points at the end of the season. And if you finish the season with the most points, you are the champion of the the Premier League. It works a lot like the regular season does in baseball or basketball. Okay. Um, yeah. Except it's the entire league instead of divisions. And that's just that's just the champion. There are other competitions at the domestic level and at the European level that are more like the playoffs, but the regular season and the champion of the regular season is just decided based on those games and if you have the most points at the end of it. So how many teams from the Premier League will end up going to the Champions League? Uh, four. So, four. And it, it changes depending on the strength of the league. So UEFA, okay. uh, which is the governing football body of Europe, you can think about it like the NCAA for the football conferences, okay. assigns a strength coefficient to every single league in Europe. And with that value, you are given X number of Champions League spots. So the Premier League is very strong, so it gets four. So the top four teams at the end of the Premier League season automatically qualify for the Champions League. So currently it's Liverpool, Manchester City, Chelsea, and I want to say Leicester, Leicester City. Leicester and Man U are tied at 59 points at the moment. Do you have goal difference per chance? I do have goal difference. Uh, Leicester is at 29 and Man U is at 26. So Leicester is ahead. Yes. Um. And at the end of the season, they'll qualify for the Champions League. And if another team wants to qualify, they've got to finish in the top four in the Prem the next year. Or okay. win the Champions League or the Europa League. And I think there's another interesting thing. I could be wrong. But if you finish at the bottom of the Premier League, you get sent down to Division 2, correct? Bottom three in the Premier League. Bottom three. So right now it's Bournemouth, Aston Villa, and Norwich City. And Norwich has already been relegated. Okay. So they will. I think they just played Chelsea the other day uh i want to say you're correct and that was the game that olivier Giroud scored yeah. assisted by Christian yes. yeah that was a nice play they did they 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 looked their their uniforms looked like uh i don't know i'm just gonna say you can definitely tell when someone's at the top of the premier league that their stuff just looks so much nicer <laughs> and classier than someone at the bottom of the league yeah it's the difference between division one and division two right so yeah, 100%. In, in England, anyway, the bottom three teams in the Premier League get relegated and the top three teams from the championship, which is second division, get promoted. Uh, and then you just fight for dear life to stay in. Because similar to the way that the Champions League works, being in the Premier League nets you a gross amount of cash because of the tv deals yeah in the same way that if like bowling green moved into the big 10 it would become richer if you move from the championship into the premier league you get significantly richer (laughs) that makes sense um so with that being said um when it comes to the champions league because i'm really only focused on the premier league uh, Liverpool obviously seems like they're probably going to be the best shot to win it Uh, they've actually already been eliminated out of out of the Champions League? Yeah, so the Champions League is still running. Okay, the, I didn't the, even know it was going on. Yes. I didn't even realize it's, that. Well, it's, part of that is because of the break. But um, So the Champions League and the Premier League season run concurrently. 
Oh, that's even more messed up. Yeah, wow. so <laughs> they plays normally it plays on Wednesday night, Tuesday and Wednesday night. Uh whereas the Premier League generally plays on the weekend. Yes. So uh right now in the current rendition of the Champions League, Liverpool has actually they got eliminated in the last round by Atletico Madrid, uh, which is one of the big three teams from Spain. Yes. Uh and currently the favorite for the Champions League is probably Bayern Munich. Um, okay. okay. They, they recently wrapped up the Bundesliga title. They have scored the most goals in all of Europe. Uh, their striker, number nine, Robert Lewandowski, is probably the front runner for the Ballon d'Or, which is uh, European football's MVP. Okay. And just the Ooh. team is is gross. They're very deep. <laughs> They, no, I mean genuinely, they're they are very, very deep at just about every single position on the pitch. Uh, they they just spent much to my dismay with the disclaimer that I'm a Manchester City fan. They they just bought Leroy Sané from Manchester City, uh, who is just this this brilliant young winger with pace to burn and a nasty cross and dribbling ability. He's just a phenomenal player. Um, so they just keep getting better. But there's also an argument to be made for Paris Saint-Germain, which is uh, famous for being the team of Neymar and Kylian Mbappe. I thought, did Neymar leave, though? Neymar left Barcelona. There, I thought there was something where he wanted to leave again, though. So there are kind of always transfer rumors surrounding Neymar, uh, partially because he's very, very good. Uh, yeah. So Real Madrid really wanted him. It looked like for a little bit. Barcelona really wanted him back. <laughs> well, Barcelona, uh, and the reason, like they have the best player in world football in Lionel Messi, but they're probably not the favorite for anything right now uh, because the rest of the team is pretty dysfunctional for a top side. So they were really trying yeah. to get Neymar back. Uh, but PSG has probably the easiest draw of any of the teams, their side of the draw is mostly non-league champions. I want to say it's like Atalanta. I think their main competition is Atalanta, which I want to say is okay. currently third or fourth in Syria, which is Italy's top flight. Okay. Is Juventus in it? Uh, yes, but they're currently down 1-0 to Lyon, if okay. I remember correctly. Does, does Ronaldo still play for them? He does. He is okay. talismanic. I want to say he scored he scored 25 goals in Serie A this season, which is mm-hmm. he's I'm pretty sure he's Juventus's sing, highest single season goal scorer ever. And this is his second season in Turin. First the only reason I ask is because when I went to Costa Rica when I was going into my senior year of high school, I went to this guy, I went to this uh, jersey shop in Costa Rica and our tour guide's like, "Oh yeah, I get all my jerseys from here." And this guy just had like a thousand soccer jerseys, and I picked the Juventus one out because it said Jeep across the chest. Yeah, and I have a Jeep, so I felt some pride there. Um, and then, like literally, I think a couple months later, or maybe a year later, he left for. Uh, yeah, he left for uh, Juventus, and I was like, "Are you kidding me?" Yeah, it was. A, I called this. It's a really big deal. He's a. I mean, he's still probably the second best player Who on the planet. He? He played for Madrid. Yeah, before. Real Madrid. Real, Real Madrid. Yeah. Okay. Now that's let me tell you, if it's a long tangent, so I'm not going to go on it. But if mm-hmm. you get a chance, look up the history of Real Madrid, because it is specifically linked to uh, Francisco Franco. 
<laughs> oh god. Yeah. <laughs> like the like the Yeah, but the Spanish Spain dictator. Or yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's there are a couple of very <laughs> famous stories about what Franco did to make sure that Real Madrid would be good cuz they were his favorite <laughs> team and they played in the capital. <laughs> like I always think about that like if I ended up being like Fidel Castro of like the US or something ever, like I'd be like, LeBron, you are playing for the Pistons this year. That's pretty much okay. what happened, actually. There was a <laughs> that's a there that's was a amazing. player. His name was Alfredo De Stefano, uh, and he was world class player, and he was attempting to be signed by Barcelona, and Franco stepped in and went nah, and signed him for Madrid, <laughs> and he went on to be Madrid's top scorer of all time. <laughs> uh, he's a legend of the game, and and the whole reason was Franco oh was like, gosh. no, I would rather you play for Real, actually. That's great. Yeah, it's great. That's great. Um, I don't think I have any more questions about the Premier League for casual fans like myself. Um, if you had to give three reasons why you should get into football and watching football, what would what would they be for you? Oh, uh, it's the only sport that plays year round. You will always oh. find football on somewhere uh in the winter you get the, the the domestic leagues in the summer you get international play uh and it's the most widely played sport on the planet so international play is good it's not like watching the united states dunk on you know france and basketball uh they, yeah they were just showing the dream team doc or whatever and they showed the u.s playing angola yeah and like they're in the fourth quarter and Charles Barkley is elbowing some random guy from Angola <laughs> in the chest. And the guy's like, we were down 48 points and he elbowed me. And, and, and Charles, Charles Barkley's like, well, he pissed me off. I'm going to elbow him. And they, like, they cut to like all the dream team members. And they're like, dude, I don't know what Charles Barkley is doing, but their final scores of those games, besides like the championship were, 50 and 40 and 30 it was just like that's not fun and like not fun there's not there's no pride in that the best the best european or the best teams you know national teams on the planet will stomp the worst national teams on the planet but almost every single nation has at least one player that's worth watching so like for example the united states despite the fact that the u.s plays more soccer than any other sport is just the men's team is not very good they didn't qualify for the last world cup uh, but the the men's team has Christian Pulisic, who is just phenomenal. Yeah, I was uh, gonna say excellent player. You know, kind of. I mean, like even my favorite player ever, Drogba. Like Cote d'Ivoire. I don't yeah. know if they're any good anymore. But like you know, they got at least like when you're watching, you're like, okay, at least they have Drogba. If well, I don't know anybody else, Cote d'Ivoire actually had a, a golden generation around Didier Drogba. One of my favorite players of all time played for Manchester City. Also played for Cote d'Ivoire, Yaya Torre. Uh, and his mm-hmm. his brother Colo Torre, who is one of Arsenal's invincibles in two thousand and six, I think. Hmm. Um, but no, pretty much every every nation on the planet produces at least one good player. Uh, so it's always it's always at least something, and it goes year round. Uh, for the Premier oh. League, I would say the biggest thing is it's it's the richest league on the planet from top to bottom. The worst team in the Premier League is probably better than the worst team in every other division in Europe. Uh, okay. Which, it, it gives it a little bit more, you know, competition. It, it's a little bit, you know, if even Norwich, like Norwich has been relegated already, but even they've been interesting to watch because at the beginning of the season, Timu Puki, everything he hit went in. 
And recently, uh, this was last year and has been the case all year, but they have a player named uh, Emilio Buendia. Uh, and Emmy Buendia is just a phenomenal player. He'll get signed by somebody when Norwich go down and he'll stay in the top flight. And that's more or less what happens every single year. You can look at the whole bottom of the table. Like Aston Villa has Jack Grealish. Bournemouth has Nathan Ake. Uh, I want to say Gerard De Lefeu is still at Watford. And, and you can kind of go through every single team. There's at least somebody to watch and cheer for. And uh, given that we're in the States, I think that the other reason to watch the Prem is, well, they, they speak English. Um, and that's and they're on NB, NBS yeah. or NBCSN too. Yeah, they so. they broadcast to the US. It's in English, uh, and it's really it's not that hard to follow a team. Like you have to get up early on the weekend. I think that's <laughs> you are one hundred percent right about that. <laughs> you gotta if you want to watch your team during like the year, it's like you're gonna have to get up at like ten or nine to watch your team, and it's worth but, it. But but it's worth it. And I've watched I've watched I think three Chelsea games now, and. Every I like I don't even really follow Chelsea that hard. I've I've picked them to be my team, but I don't even follow them really hard. You picked a good time can, to start. With. I know they're they're fun to watch, and they're about to get more fun. Soccer. I don't even know soccer that much, but when I watch it, it's just entertaining to like like you like. There's something about scoring a goal, like when you make a three in basketball, it's like ah big whoop. Honestly, it's like good shot. You make a couple of threes, that's really fun because it's kind of rare, but. I mean, soccer goals, you're lucky to get four in a game. You're lucky you know? to get two in a game with most teams. Like, Well, so I'm saying I'm saying oh, aggregate? Between, yeah. yeah, 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 maybe four. And so every time it happens, there's so many things that lead up to it and there's so many things that got to go right. And maybe the defense pushes out too far and that opens up something. And it's just like this whole chain. And finally, when it like connects, it's just kind of, it's just so beautiful. So I've enjoyed that aspect. My most. my honorable mention for reasons to start watching the Premier League and, and soccer in general uh, is that you can play it. It's everyone can play soccer. Everyone can play football. Yeah. It it takes a ball. Like I yeah. remember in my neighborhood, we had a set of trees that were just kind of slightly parallel, and they were our goalposts. And we used to play all the time. <laughs> it's so easy to get out and kick a ball. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. And honestly, the, I guess the as far as like actually playing goes, if you like a Premier League team, especially a top half Premier League team, or a uh, even more a good Premier League team like Liverpool, City, Chelsea, United, those Tuesday and those Tuesday and Wednesday night games in the Champions League, which normally start they kick off at like three thirty Eastern time, mm-hmm. those are the best games to watch. In all of yeah. world sport, because they're always competitive, they're always interesting, they're always hard, uh, and mm-hmm. you get to see the the best players in the entire world play that sport. It's like if the Super Bowl aired twice a week, you know? Yeah. Or I guess yeah. the the football playoffs aired twice a week, playoffs, like, like a divisional game. Yeah. Yeah, and and once you start getting into the finals, like if you if you start getting into the final eight, you're talking about you know, City, Juventus, Bayern Munich, PSG, Barcelona, Real Madrid, these teams that even if you don't like soccer, you've heard of. Uh, That's true. And I, it's just one of those sports, like, I can talk about it with you. I can talk about it with a kid in Brazil. I can talk about it with someone from England. It's worldwide. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Just, you got to start, and it's worth it. Pick a team. Go nuts. Don't pick a, don't pick a team that's getting relegated, because it's harder to watch a championship. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that happened to me when I took a quiz to see what team I like. I, I should follow, and the the quiz was a couple of years old, and then I found out the team that I picked it, no longer was in the Premier League. It's been a, it had been rough, you know. Prior to two thousand eight, City had not been very good, and then in two thousand and eight, we got bought by a ridiculously rich man, uh, and now all of a sudden they're one of the best teams in Europe. But yeah, uh, worth it for Ryan. Me. Ryan. Thank you for being on the Dylan Bush podcast. It's been an honor to have you. We will definitely have you back. We are trying to do more of a scheduled thing with you and my other guest that I do on the other day, other days of the week. Um, more, I think with sports coming back and with school and society kind of resuming or trying to resume more or less, we'll have stuff to talk about. So again, Ryan, thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me, man. It was a pleasure. And that will conclude the Dylan Bush podcast. Tune in next time for something. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See you, Ryan. Yeah, later, skater.